Father, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus Christ. And we pray truly, Lord, that we might behold him. It's hard to to get any more strong than when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Help us to know what that's like today. In Christ's name, Amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, due to um, some illness in our staff and leaders, I'm multitasking today. So bear with me as I play three or four different roles. Uh, this morning, we're going to be doing a, uh, a children's message of the second sermon. That's also uh, new today. Uh, we weren't able to offer our children's ministry during the second service, so I'm going to do a children's message for them instead. So if in the beginning of this sermon it feels like I'm addressing you as children, that is why. Uh, because of the second service, I will have children to address, all right? So just bear with me there as well. When um, my son Cohen was three, there was one uh, evening where I was reading him a story before bed, and we were reading his very favorite book, and I brought it with me today, uh, not for you guys, but for the kids at the second service, okay? It's called Cars and Trucks and Things That Go. Anyone seen this book before? Richard Scarry, uh, big-time children's uh, you know, author, wrote a lot of books like this. This is his kind of top-shelf book here, and my son Cohen loved it. Um, The book is full of uh, these cars and these trucks and these things that go. The the title is extremely accurate, I promise you, those of you who haven't haven't read through it. And in the mind of a three-year-old, all of these cars and trucks and vehicles make noises. Three-year-old boy, mind you, right? Honk, honk, beep, beep, uh, that is the music coming from the pages of this book. Now, um, to make this book more interesting, inside of all these vehicles are different kinds of animals, all right? Uh, All sorts. And they're driving these cars and trucks and things that go. Well, I was reading this book to Cohen one evening, and I don't remember what page we were on, because um, if you've seen the book, many of the pages look the same. But uh, I pointed to one of the animals inside one of the vehicles, and I said, Cohen, do you know what kind of animal this is? And he said in his very quiet three-year-old voice, a sheep. And I said, no, uh, it's actually not a sheep. It's a goat. And I said, do you want to know how you can tell the difference between a sheep and a goat, at least in a children's book? Uh, and he, he said, yes. And I said, well, uh, sheep don't have horns, and goats do have horns. So if you see an animal with horns and it looks like a sheep, it's probably a goat. Right away, Cohen said something amazing. All right, he said something amazing. He said in his little three-year-old voice again, do goat horns go beep, beep? <laughs> now, at first uh, hearing that, I didn't understand what Cohen had done. And so I started to explain to him, well, you know, the horns on cars are different than the horns on animals. And then I look down and I see his little smirk on his face. And then it hit me. Cohen had just told me his first joke. Do goat horns go beep, beep? Now, there were lots of times before this that Cohen had said funny things, all right? But they were unintentional. They're just, you know, cuteness coming out of a one, two, and three-year-old. But this time, he intended to say something funny. Now, um, I'm going to use a big word with the, 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 the children, and I'll use this big word with you as well, all right? The word is manifestation, This was the first time that uh, Cohen's ability to tell a joke was manifested to me. All right? Now, what's a manifestation? Um, Can you say manifestation with me, children? (laughs) Manifestation? 
what is a manifestation? A manifestation is when something is made known. It's when you realize something for the first time. When you realize that something is happening or something is able to happen. It's like when uh, you know, something goes public. It's made public. It's made known. A manifestation. Now, manifestation, a very important word in the Bible. Uh, in fact, um, you'll see many Bible verses that use that word. In Christmas, the season we've just been through, we've celebrated how Jesus, the Son of God, was manifested to us in human flesh. As the Messiah, he appeared, he went public. Now, this word manifestation also has a great deal to do with the feast day, uh, which we are celebrating today. Do you know what that day is today, children? It's Epiphany. That's right. Another big word. All right, Epiphany. What does that word mean? By the feast of the Epiphany, we mean the manifestation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Not just for some people, but for all people. Not just for some people, but for all people. In our gospel reading from just a few minutes ago, um, who came to visit Jesus? Three magi, three wise men, three kings from the east. They came to worship. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. And because of that moment, it became clear that in God's plan for the story of redemption... God was after everyone and not just the people of Israel. And so the manifestation in Epiphany is this. If I can sum it up as succinctly as possible, it is God in Christ is the Savior of all people. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. That's the message of Epiphany. So, um, for the kids and for the adults, as we go through the sermon this morning, I'm going to be putting up some some images on the screen, rather, to be more accurate. David is going to be putting some images up on the screen. And uh, we're going to follow along. What we're going to do today is go through the story of redemption and follow this theme. This theme, God in Christ is the Savior of all people. Um, In fact, it doesn't just show up in the New Testament. It's a thread that starts in Genesis And it runs all the way through to the end of the book in Revelation. In fact, um, it has a great uh, deal to do with the book of Acts, which we focused on in ordinary time of last year. And uh, it's for that reason that today I don't want to spend more time explaining this theme. You heard a lot about that theme in uh, the six months that we were in the book of Acts. What I want to do is simply show how this theme is biblical through and through. So, where we're going to begin, uh, we're going to rewind the story of the Bible all the way back to the sixth day of creation. We are in Genesis chapter 1. God has just completed five days of creative work, and he's about to perform his magnum opus, which is to create human beings, to make them in his image. God makes the man first, and then he makes the woman, and together, as the human race, they bear God's likeness. God is their God, and he's going to be the God of all the offspring that they will ever have, and the world and all that was in it was very good. Now, fast forward uh, a day, a week, a month, a year, uh, a millennium, we don't know how long. We're in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent has deceived Adam and Eve into eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil against God's very clear command. Not to do so. And as a result of this act of rebellion, God, he curses the man. He curses the woman. He curses the creation itself. 
And he curses the serpent last of all. And God tells the serpent specifically, he's going to put enmity, hostility, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. And he says that the serpent's offspring is going to bruise the heel of the woman's offspring. But the woman's offspring is going to bruise the head of the serpent. This passage is often referred to as the Proto-Evangelion or the first gospel. Because here is the first message that, that God is promising to redeem what Adam and Eve have done. While the offspring of Adam and Eve are going to struggle against sin and struggle against death and struggle against evil, God is promising that a capital O offspring of Adam and Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent being the symbol of the very things that the serpent led Adam and Eve into. And that offspring is going to be the savior of all humanity. God in Christ is the savior of all people. Fast forward with me um, X number of years to around 2100 BC. We're in Genesis chapter 12. Adam and Eve's descendants, they've greatly increased in number. And they've also increased in evil. Such that God decided it was best to flood the earth. But what God also did was to spare one family. The man of Noah, a man named Noah, and his family were spared. And here in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to a descendant of Noah's son Shem, a man by the name of Abram. And with Abram, God makes this gracious covenant. He says that he's going to cause Abraham Abram and his descendants to prosper and he's going to have a special relationship with Abram and his offspring so that the redemption that was promised after the fall might come about. But God doesn't just promise to bless Abram. And he doesn't just promise to bless Abram's descendants. He promises that through Abram and his descendants, all the people of the earth will be blessed. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. Again, fast forward 1150 years to about 950 BC. We are in the book of Psalms, number 72, which was the psalm read for us this morning. And after God made his covenant with Abram, God made good on his promises. He established Abram's descendants. He called them out of slavery in Egypt. He gave them a law. He made them into a nation, he took them into the promised land, and he gave them leaders to lead them. At this moment, Israel has its third king, King Solomon. Solomon writes this psalm, Psalm 72, and in it, he prays for the kings of Israel. He prays for God to bless the king. In fact, he asks that all the nations of the earth would come down to Jerusalem and bring gifts and to serve the king of Israel. That's interesting. Now Solomon, as we might guess, is not just praying for himself as the king, nor for just the royal sons that would follow him. Rather, he's also praying a prophecy of the coming capital K king that God promised to Solomon's father David that would sit on the throne forever. We know him, of course, as King Jesus, and Solomon prophesies that indeed all the nations of the earth will serve him. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. Fast forward again, 250 years. We are to, in the year 700 B.C. 
in the book of Isaiah chapter 60, our Old Testament lesson for today. Solomon is long dead, and unfortunately the United Kingdom of Israel is divided into two kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom, Israel, got exiled 22 years ago to the nation of Assyria because of all the sin and all the idolatry that had permeated that kingdom. And Isaiah, therefore, warns the people of the southern kingdom of Judah that the same thing is going to happen to them if they don't repent. If they don't turn back to God and get rid of the idols and get rid of the sin. Now, Isaiah, he is not all doom and gloom. We heard a glimmer of hope in the message today. What he promises is that a people, from the people uh, there in Judah, from them, a Messiah is going to come to bring about the redemption that God has promised. And Isaiah talks about the light of the Lord. The light of the Lord will come to his people. And when he comes, this capital L, light, will draw all the nations to himself. So says Isaiah, prophet to Judah. And Isaiah says they're going to come to this light and they're going to worship him, getting as specific to say that they will bring gifts of frankincense and gold. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. Let's fast forward 700 years. We are in the year 4 BC in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Despite Isaiah's warnings, as hardy as they were, the people of Judah were eventually exiled. They did not repent, and God sent them to Babylon. And though they had to stay there in exile for 70 years, eventually they were allowed to return to Jerusalem. They were allowed to rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple. But the voice and the presence of the Lord was subdued. It just wasn't there with the same strength, the same veracity until now. A capital K king has been born in Israel. And three Gentile kings, they hear about this. They hear about his birth. And they travel a long distance to bring him gifts and to worship him. Now, Isaiah's prophecy is coming to pass. Solomon's prayer is coming to pass. God's promise to Abram is coming to pass. And God's promise to Adam and Eve is coming to pass. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. Fast forward 30 years to 27 A.D., we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Jesus, the baby, has grown up into Jesus, the man. He's finally beginning his prophetic ministry in Israel. And here he makes a strange decision to leave uh, the region of Judea, where the Jews are. And he goes outside of it into the region of Samaria. And in doing so, of course, he meets a Samaritan woman. This woman is not just a non-Jew, she's a sinner with a broken and troubled past, and she's yearning for redemption. Jesus can read it all over her body. And what Jesus tells the woman is that he has the very living water that she seeks. And moreover, he tells her that God the Father is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. Because the Messiah is going to come from the Jews, but the Messiah is going to be for all people. So says Jesus. 
The woman, in hearing this from Jesus, she tells him that, well, when the Messiah indeed comes, he will explain all of these things. And Jesus turns to her and says, the Messiah is him. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. Fast forward three years to 30 A.D. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Jesus' prophetic ministry was ended by a sudden crucifixion. He was nailed to a cross and killed. All of his followers were scattered. But three days after being killed, Jesus was raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. And it turns out that that Jesus' death upon the cross was his willing, sacrificial atonement for the sins of the whole world. And his resurrection was the victory over death. And God's authentication of his anointing upon him. Therefore, Jesus can offer all those who believe in him eternal life. Now, in the period following Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appears to his followers for about 40 days. And at the end of gospel, of the Matthew's gospel, Jesus appears to them for one last time. In Matthew 28, and there, he commands his disciples, in what we know as the Great Commission, to spread the good news of salvation to the whole region of Jerusalem and Judea and Israel. And don't stop there. Don't stop there. Go out to Samaria and go out to the ends of the earth. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. Fast forward eight to ten years. We are in the book of Acts chapter 10. It's around 38 A.D. Jesus ascended into heaven and Ten days later, the Holy Spirit fell upon Jesus' disciples and upon the apostles. Uh, We know as what the Pentecost. And with the Spirit's power behind them, Jesus' disciples, they get busy. They get busy spreading the gospel to all those around them, but they go further. And this guy named Saul, a Pharisee, was viciously persecuting these Christians as they tried to take this, what he saw as a heresy, uh, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but around. And it's at this time that we see in the church the first martyr, Stephen the deacon. Eventually, this guy Saul himself would be turned into a Christian, and he would even become an apostle. But here, before that happens, in Acts chapter 10, something revolutionary occurs. The apostle Peter has just received a vision from God. And he's brought by some messengers to this Roman centurion named Cornelius. It turns out Cornelius has had a vision too. And he's waiting for Peter to preach something to him. And when Peter realizes the significance of this moment, he preaches the good news to Cornelius and all in his household. And what he tells them is that he now understands God doesn't show favoritism. God doesn't show favoritism. Because if Jesus is the Savior at all, Jesus must be the Savior for all. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. Fast forward 24 years to around 62 A.D., We're in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, which was our New Testament lesson for today. Since Cornelius heard the gospel and believed, scores of Gentiles have believed also. Churches have been planted all around the Mediterranean, in Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Thessalonica, in Corinth, in Galatia, even all the way to Rome. 
Saul, now known as Paul, has become the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's actively journeying around the Mediterranean, planting churches and encouraging those that have already been planted. But eventually, he's arrested. He's arrested and he's taken to a prison in Rome, and it's from that prison that he writes the letter to the church in the city of Ephesus. And in that letter, Paul describes the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ to what was probably predominantly a Gentile church. And he tells them the mystery of Christ is this. That Jesus is not simply the Savior for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. That's the mystery. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. Fast forward. 33 years to 95 AD. We are in the book of Revelation chapter 7. Paul and all the other apostles have been killed for their faith. Except one. The apostle John. And here, John is writing the last book of the biblical canon. And here in chapter 7, he receives a revelation from Christ. And the entire book is a letter to seven of the major churches in the region. This revelation, specifically in chapter 7, is full of apocalyptic imagery and prophecy about the end of days. And John gets this vision in chapter 7 of the throne room of God. What is going on with God right now? God the Father is on the throne. And beside God is the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became a human in order to die a sacrificial death, a Lamb's death for the whole world. And standing before the throne and before the Lamb are all those people who have been saved by Him and are awaiting the resurrection of their bodies and the new creation that is to come. And guess what? The people don't look the same. They don't look the same. There are people from every race and every ethnicity and every nation of the world and their faces are black and brown and olive and even white. Some lived in Adam and Eve's time. Some lived in Abram's time. Some lived in Solomon's time. Some lived in Isaiah's time. Some lived in Peter and Paul's time. Some lived in Augustine's time. Or in Anselm's time. Or in Cranmer's time. Or in Wesley's time. Some in our time. And some in the time of our children's children. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. Fast forward one more time. Around 1,927 years. The year is 2022 AD. Followers of Jesus in Tempe, Arizona are gathered to worship Jesus. Not just here, but yes here at Living Faith. A lot has happened in the story of redemption since John saw that vision of the throne room of God. But the thread of the epiphany which began in Genesis continues to run to this day. The scope of God's redemption has always been broader and wider than the covenant made to Israel. That was just the beginning. Just the beginning. 
And it's come all the way. That love of God, that faithfulness of God has come all the way to us here two millennia later and across hemisphere. That's remarkable. And what we are waiting on here in the year 2022 is for the completion of the story of redemption. And how is it completed? When the rest of the ends of the earth get to hear the message of Epiphany 2. That's when the story ends. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. That's the message. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us while we wait for Christ to come? First of all, it means that no matter who you are, Christ is for you. It doesn't matter who you can trace your lineage back to. It doesn't matter what you've done or the kind of person that you've been. All those who repent and believe the gospel are saved. Christ is your Savior. Epiphany also means, though, that Jesus isn't just your Savior, but he's everyone's Savior. He doesn't have a soft spot for Americans over Mexicans. He doesn't prefer English to Arabic. He doesn't identify with men more than women. He wouldn't rather hang out with the upper crust than the lower class. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. And when all kinds of people put their faith in Christ for salvation, they become equal members of his body. And Paul refers to this explicitly in his letter to the Galatians chapter 3 when he says, For as many of you, as many of you, no exceptions, were baptized into Christ Jesus, have put on Christ. And now there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs, according to the promise God made to him in Genesis chapter 12. You are. God in Christ is the Savior of all people. And from this theme... What we'll see in the two months to come, this season of Epiphany Tide that we will walk through, are two very clear sub-themes. The first is internal to the church, and that is the unity of the church. You see, if Christ saves all kind of people, that's great. But he always saves them into one body. One body. And therefore, we are to be one as God is one. The unity of the church. A second sub-theme, though, is external to the church, and that's the mission of God. Because of the epiphany message that God in Christ is the Savior of all people, we have a calling to spread the epiphany message, to join in with the mission of God. And so in, in the texts and in the sermons that we'll be hearing in the next two months, these themes are going to show up. A lot. And it's all because of this thread running all the way through the story of redemption. The way I want to close for today is to hear what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12. 
Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Epiphany is the celebration of the manifestation of Jesus Christ as the light of the world. But the curious thing is this. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So who is it? Who's the light of the world, Jesus? Is it you? Or is it those who follow you? Yes. One leads to the other. As we'll see very much in this season of Epiphany. Let's pray. Jesus, we do come and we bow down and adore you. Give us greater understanding into your identity and your promises as the light of the whole world. And God, we ask that along with that understanding, you would give us a greater and deeper commitment to living in the ways that lights of the world, like we are, should. Being unified and one together as your body and not withholding the epiphany message from the world around us, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.